Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining us for our 150th episode of the Midweek Roundup. Yes, we've crossed the three-year threshold with our Midweek Roundup, and we're so happy to be coming to you today to discuss uh, some of the core issues that we've been talking about for years here on the Roundup, but having some new information to share on what's going on in the world of international education, particularly from the perspective of U.S. international educators. So we'll get to our three questions in just a minute. Those are, what does a U.S. international education strategy look like? Second, are international travel restrictions making sense these days? And third, how far will China's crackdown on the West go? Uh, we'll get into each of these three issues a little bit more in depth over the next half hour. Before we do that, though, I want to give a special uh, welcome to everybody watching live for the first time. Uh, we come every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern as an opportunity to really connect with you uh, and go in depth into some of these common themes that we're seeing develop in international education in the United States. Also, a shout out to those listening on repeat, either uh, on the YouTube channel or our Facebook page for SMIE Consulting. And of course, those who are our loyal podcasters who have downloaded our Midweek Roundup and make it a regular part of their listening enjoyment each week. So thank you, thanks again for uh, giving me the time off last week. Uh, had a bit of a family vacation uh, in uh, Massachusetts on Cape Cod with my dad and uh, got a, had a wonderful stop on the way home through Niagara Falls. So great experiences with family, creating new memories, and hopefully we're entering a new period in international education in the United States as our first question does seem to indicate. And that is, what does a U.S. international education strategy look like? And obviously the theme of this, why this has come up, is we've been kind of calling for one in the U.S. for over a quarter century, if not longer, uh, because, frankly, uh, we, we don't have uh, our, uh, any real attempt at a national strategy. We have competing departments at the federal level with State Department, Commerce, Homeland Security, Department of Education to a lesser extent, that have various uh, fingers in the pie of international education, so to speak, uh, but we really don't have a concrete strategy. Um, as one of my colleagues, Clay Hensley, formerly of College Board, has commented recently that uh, our individuality in the United States, our uh, sense of independence uh, is our great superpower. Uh, but, uh, and whether we need an international ed strategy in this country is, uh, is, is a question he's, he's, op he's openly asking. Uh, not necessarily, necessarily discounting the attempts by the Biden administration uh, a couple of weeks ago during the Education USA Forum to publicly announce uh, joint support among the relevant departments at Commerce, State, and DHS uh, to uh, promote uh, the United States in a combined, cohesive way uh, with a singular message, and that is certainly welcome news. Uh, it's not a strategy yet, it's just thinking about a strategy. Uh, so that's the real difference, I think, where we're, where we're, we're, we're not, those of us from Missouri, like myself, who, where I grew up, uh, I'm from there, and you gotta show me. Uh, I need some meat on the bones, I need some details about what this strategy will look like. It obviously gets international educators all excited when they hear this idea, in the United States at least, that we're finally, as a country, going to grapple these issues. Um, and the, when I talk about how the United States is viewed, 
in my recent series with IDP Connect, and uh, that really forms the basis of my philosophy uh, regarding international education, is the first P, the six P's of strategic international enrollment management. That first P for me is perspective. And this recognition on the part of the Biden administration to develop a comprehensive international education strategy for the nation is one that's borne out by the admission that we don't have one and that our competitors do uh, in, in the UK, in Australia, certainly in Canada. We see elements of a, a, a national level strategy to coordinate efforts to promote the, the uh, country's institutions as destinations for international students to enable uh, immigration regulations to be smooth and transparent and clean uh, for prospective students and scholars to come to the United States. Uh, and that we've suffered in the United States from other countries who have got their act together for various reasons at the national level. And our sense of perspective as a nation is that we are behind on that in terms of having our own strategy and having a smooth, streamlined process for international students. We know how there are certain things about our process that will never be streamlined, and that certainly has a lot to do with how individual we all are as institutions in the U.S. But when you look at the real uh, rub of how we are viewed as a country globally uh, by prospective audiences, we're still seen as the best location for quality education. Uh, the history, the tradition, all of that is here. Uh, it's, it exists, history and tradition certainly exists in other countries like the UK, uh, but to on a very different level and scale in the United States where routinely the top rankings all have the United States institutions in the top um, mostly 30-40% of the top 20% Top 20 institutions in the U in the world are in, based in the U.S. and large on larger scales as well. When you go into top 250, 200, uh, 500 ranked in institutions globally, U.S. always dominates those rankings. So the challenge is we we have that quality and we have that reputation, but other countries have been chipping away at that lead over the years. So the need for a national strategy to counter some of that and to acknowledge we can be better. Uh, we can, as the Biden administration likes to refer to everything it does, as build back better. Uh, and there's some, a lot of building back that needs to be done on the PR front, certainly, from what has happened over the last four previous administrations' uh, attempts to uh, pose the U.S. in a very different light internationally. You see now uh, with this attempt last uh, couple weeks ago at the EDUSA Forum to build, lay the building blocks at least for what an international strategy would be for uh, the country. So NAFSA uh, being the largest uh, member organization that certainly has uh, a long history um, among other uh, advocacy groups of fighting for and recommending an international ed policy. That's that that track record is clear, and they've got to put out a couple of articles in the last week or so that are are reflective of I think the mood of international educators in the U.S. as a whole. Uh, one of those is uh, the first. Uh, entitled The National Strategy on Educa International Education Takes a Quantum Leap. And Quantum Leap is from zero, nothing, to at least thinking about it in terms of how, uh, how I think it's being viewed. And NAFSA, obviously, the, one of the subheadings in the article is why NAFSA loves this. And it, uh, it, it's, it's always refreshing to hear these kinds of messages coming from government leaders that talk about collaboration, that talk about uh, recognizing a need uh, and that we are falling behind uh, and that 
uh, these national strategies other countries have adopted have led to them getting a larger share of the international student mobility pie. We've talked about on the roundup before about how our share of the pie has decreased, even though our numbers, overall numbers, have increased up until the pandemic hit. Uh, we've seen uh, the, our share go from just under 30 percent 25 years ago to uh, to around 20, 21 percent right now. So that's significant. And uh, in terms of maintaining our, our edge and our competitiveness globally, uh, there's um, now a, a, a recognition on the part of the government for the first time in a long time, first time since uh, April of 2000 that uh, there's even been talk from the, from the, uh, the top of the, of the administration that there needs to be a re-overhaul of our international, uh, of our, how we, do, how we frame ourselves as a country with regard to international education. And that was back in the Clinton administration in, the, in an election year uh, that was where Clinton des designated Vice President Gore to be to take the lead on this. And obviously when he didn't get elected, uh, that those, anything that would, had been uh, planned fell apart. Uh, then 9-11 happened and the rest is history. So we, we, it's been a long time since this has even been discussed at the highest levels of government. Uh, when I worked at Education USA in the late 2000s, early teens, this, this topic came up and because Education USA, part of State Department, uh, they had their own particular views on what that might look like as a public diplomacy tool. Uh, but Commerce has slightly different uh, views on that for looking at it as promoting U.S. business interests abroad. And then you had DHS, the newly formed uh, uh, government agency that was responsible for homeland security and then had different perspectives on uh, the need for what, uh, what policy could, can and should be. So the NAFSA article here really takes a nice look at uh, what the impact uh, the announcement will have on the field of education. Uh, it's, uh, as they say, an affirmation of the values of global engagement, inclusion and diversity that we hold as a field. Uh, but the practical implications is what they look at. Uh, the statement is still a big deal, even though there's, there weren't any policy initiatives that were launched uh, with this announcement. It was just the, here's what we're planning, and we're, we're going to tackle these areas. And they recognize the need for a streamlined visa process, for potential uh, dual visa, uh, they don't, though they didn't mention it by name, that they do see a need for uh, that talks about study abroad as a critical element of a quality higher educational experience, uh, increasing funding for, for, for those programs like Fulbright and others that uh, diversify our, uh, our footprint in terms of where, where our students and scholars go and what, where we can bring them in from. Uh, and in bringing more institutions into the fold in terms of the kinds of U.S. colleges that are recruiting overseas and how they're recruiting. And as, as always, they provide, NAFSA does, uh, one thing I, I always applaud them for is their advocacy work. And they do have a grassroots uh, effort through, uh, through the regions and the states uh, with their individual uh, advocacy reps to, um, to talk about getting, signing up to get, the, get emails sent out on these relevant topics to your uh, elected officials to, in support of these initiatives. And uh, certainly I, I applaud that and any type of advocacy you do, uh, you can certainly uh, not do worse than what, uh, 
what NAFSA has been doing. They, they've provided resources for years and templates and make it very simple to advocate for, uh, for the causes in international education that we feel so strongly about. So uh, kudos to NAFSA for, for, uh, for, for promoting this as much as they have. Uh, they do also have a much uh, broader set of recommendations uh, that they have made to the Biden-Harris administration, uh, particularly in light of this uh, new uh, commitment to international education and developing a strategy. Uh, they've called it Re Rebuilding and Restoring International Education Leadership. So uh, it's a, there's a full set of full recommendations you can download. Again, all the links to these new stories I'm dropping in the comments section on the Facebook page for, uh, for the midweek roundup um, uh, on SMIE Consulting. And uh, they have a four-pager here that really details some of the, uh, some of the things that, uh, uh, that really impact uh, prospective students' views and pathways for, uh, for, the, for those, uh, those students. Uh, that are considering the United States, and they talk about uh, extending, the, uh, including a dual intent policy uh, for F status uh, that creates a direct path to lawful permanent residence for international graduates of U.S. colleges and universities. Again, eliminating that, uh, uh, making that a clear that by having dual intent in the F status that allows uh, that gets rid of the 214B requirement that uh, has oftentimes dinged international students who are judged to have not had significant ties to their home countries and doesn't make that a big issue or as significant an issue for the consular officers when they're making that initial visa decision. It talks about uh, limited work authorization for families of international students with F status, uh, eliminates current green card backlogs and prevent further backlogs and that's always a big thing for those that go uh, from OPT and F status to H-1B or LP or L status, uh, that uh, oftentimes are, are challenges. Uh, there are real issues here, and I think they, they, they address the ones that make sense. And they talk about some of those back-end issues with processing on OPT and all these other uh, uh, USCIS uh, benefits. Uh, so that, there's some real uh, concrete proposals in here that, uh, that if, if fully implemented, certainly would re reflect uh, a much stronger uh, and for the first time a international education policy for the United States or an international ed policy for the U.S. So good to see that uh, and certainly there's a lot more many more miles to go uh, before we have anything concrete but it's great to see a movement at least uh, after 20 plus years of having nothing. Uh, so great to see that uh, and we'll uh, certainly be supporting it and updating you as the, as the news allows. Uh, but we'll move on to our second question now, which is, are international travel restrictions making sense? And we're not just talking about U.S. travel restrictions, which really aren't that significant right now, but could be getting a lot more so in the coming months. We're talking about some of the, uh, the, uh, the red listing and uh, blacklisting of countries for no-go's. Uh, CDC just put a few more countries on the no-go list uh, for travelers and some of which still have NIE exemptions that we've talked about that will allow students to come uh, as of August 1st, they will allow students to come into the U.S. But uh, you see as a, an article in The Atlantic that talks about few leaders seem concerned about what we might lose by being cut off from one another. And yes, COVID is, is a global pandemic and yes, uh, we, uh, governments need to protect their own citizens first, uh, but there are some real hurdles right now to traveling internationally. 
Uh, and that is, uh, you've got, as the article points out, you've got a labyrinth of COVID-19 tests, potential quarantines, health author authorization forms, uh, scarce flights to get there, and then potential vaccination requirements that m countries might be implementing. Uh, and the United States is one of those. And what are the implications for uh, these, inter these, uh, these international travel restrictions? Is it all just uh, health-related, that protecting citizens, or are some of these just not making much sense uh, that fully reopening now doesn't make a whole lot of sense with the Delta variant? But a lot of, a lot of times the countries have been really uh, taking unilateral approaches, uh, very, uh, as the article points out, what they call haphazard, uh, that, uh, that these haven't been imposed and uh, because they're easier than taking action at home to stop the virus. So it's always seen as, uh, and some, to some extent that could still be said to what's, uh, what's happening, happening in the United States. So frankly, the U.S. is one of the easier uh, countries now to travel to. If, uh, if you're not, if you are a student, uh, certainly uh, we're not talking general populations yet. Uh, like, for example, we still can't go to Canada uh, as U.S. citizens until later this month. Um, but uh, for those traveling here, uh, if you're not a student, uh, it's pretty limited in terms of being, your opportunities to come in into the country. Uh, business, uh, business is still allowable, business travel like that. But uh, now for EU citizens and UK citizens, if you're fully vaccinated, you are, are able to travel. Uh, and that's, that's, that's encouraging. Uh, but certainly other countries don't have that. And to, to my colleagues who are uh, road warriors in the past, we're looking to get back out there soon. Some are, are even attempting to go somewhere, some places this fall. That's a huge labyrinth to navigate in between uh, those quor potential quarantines, any countries that might require them. Might not require them now, but might in, in a month's time when you're traveling and if you've already purchased flights that don't have, uh, that are, are hopefully refundable, you're, you're, you won't have much flexibility. So it's, um, it's really, really taking, it's going to throw all travel plans, I think, in, in, uh, up in the air. And frankly, I, my, my recommendation would be not to travel this fall just because there's too much craziness still going on uh, that even if you're vaccinated yourself, uh, that might not be enough in some countries uh, to uh, to meet their requirements. Certainly not can't go, can't go to Australia or New Zealand right now uh, or China even if even if you wanted to. So that's uh, there's a lot lot of unknowns still out there and a lot that's very changeable in terms of what governments are doing. But the question is, are these restrictions making sense from a public health circumstance? That's certainly the justification for all of them. Uh, but uh, the reality is that we are closing ourselves off from the worst of the world, and not just the United States here. I'm talking more broadly about other countries that have much more severe uh, travel restrictions. Australia, New Zealand, China, they're all uh, seeing the impact of that on, um, pers on perspective int uh, interest, uh, certainly student interest that we, we, we talk about often here on the Roundup. Uh, they're taking a beating, and uh, not, uh, they're not likely to recover anytime soon. Another article out in Australia says that they're not going to reopen until 80% of their population are vaccinated. They're not anticipating more than 70% being vaccinated before the end of 2021. So we're already into 2022, sometime perhaps in 2022 when they might hit that 80% threshold. That's when the current government in Australia is talking about reopening. What damage is being done in the long term to those countries and particularly on the university and international ed fronts?
So uh, on the travel restrictions, we, we should point out that the Biden administration, and as, if you're an international educator, this should make you nervous, uh, that they are planning to require foreign visitors to be fully vaccinated. The plans have not been outlined in terms of implementation yet. Their, ta their talk is that it's going to be a phased-in implementation. But uh, for, it's, un, it's very unlikely, certainly unlikely because most uh, campuses will have arrivals for new students coming this month or early September, the latest. It's, um, it's doubtful this plan to require international visitors to be uh, fully vaccinated. And that means a month out from your second shot if you're on one of those two shot doses. Or, uh, so that could, that could have significant implications for travelers who are, or students that might be looking to come for uh, January terms. So um, if they're certainly, if they're not able to get uh, vaccines back home, which for the majority of students is still not happening, uh, not, not happening certainly for this fall, but if that's still the case in the spring, if their plans were to come in January because they deferred and it was still a little bit hairy and couldn't get flights, whatever it might be for, uh, for the fall, uh, you, you could be in another situation that uh, those students will have to defer until they can get vaccinations at home. The only hope then uh, is there are exemptions made for students again, like the NIE for the uh, red-listed uh, CDC countries right now. Uh, that if that are currently allowed, NIE is allowing them in after August 1st this year uh, for study. But um, if this exemption isn't in place for students uh, for the spring, uh, for students that might be coming in the spring, that could pose knock-on effects uh, for many, many uh, months to come because it's going to be a while before everybody's going to be able to get fully vaccinated in terms of students who are looking to come. We've seen other countries that are prioritizing vaccinate, vaccinating students, like in India, uh, that uh, is allowing those students that want to go abroad still have that, have, that, have that realistic chance, even if they're going to countries that require vaccines, they'll be covered. But a lot of details still to be worked out with this policy, so we'll certainly keep our eyes on that because that could be a potential bugaboo for international educators here in the United States. So we'll keep you posted on that one. Now, uh, there's, there have been a couple articles about these vaccine requirements, and uh, the Pi News has had it, had it covered, uh, covered both sides of this issue, actually, in the last week. Uh, first up, they asked, uh, the, the first article was international students face confusion around vaccine mandates in the United States. And I mentioned this in a, in a social media post on this this week, that this, I think, is a little bit of a, a, a red herring in that uh, the students uh, that are, we're talking about that would be directly impacted by vaccine requirements at this stage in the recruitment cycle, they're looking to come this fall. There isn't confusion on their part because they've already picked their institution and their institution, ideally, has communicated what, if any, requirements they're going to be for vaccinations. And so they're aware that and most universities will have either vaccination, if you are requiring vaccinations for study, uh, unless you're Indiana University that won't let you get up, be on campus until you're, you're fully vaccinated and then you're month out uh, to, for study, you have to, be, you have to do it for, start virtually. Uh, for new international students, that's not possible, so that means they won't be able to come, and hopefully that will be communicated uh, if they can't be in person right away. Uh, what is the option for them? Uh, are they going to be allowed to live on campus but, uh, and, but take classes remotely, but be, basically may be in quarantine until they've been become fully vaccinated? That's not an option at IU. You can't be on campus at all, faculty, staff, students, whatever. But... Um, 
if by, by this point in the process, commu commu communication should have already happened about what an admitted student who's got their I-20, has gotten their visa, is looking to come and booking their flights, they'll already know from their institution, right, what the policies will be for them at that institution. They're not worrying about what five other universities are doing at this point. Uh, maybe four or five months ago before they made their decisions on where they were going to go, what I-20 they were going to use to apply for a visa. That's, uh, that's another point entirely, when a lot of institutions still didn't know what they were going to do in the fall. But right now, in August, students are coming in days, uh, at most a couple, three, four weeks. So uh, for them to be confused, no. We're talking about maybe larger, larger populations that may be looking at January or next fall. You may have some confusion because they're still looking at a broad number of institutions. So a little bit of a red herring with that article, but uh, certainly in a broader sense, um, I think the second article that they posted, it was actually a little bit earlier, they say students are overwhelmingly willing to get vaccines in quarantine. And that's not just for U.S. bound, that's for uh, for uh, any uh, any various destinations that these students are looking at. So uh, this article certainly uh, is reflecting an IDP Connect study uh, that their, their numbers reflect, I think, half of those surveyed by IDP Connect are already fully vaccinated, so they can arrive uh, in their chosen study destinations, whether it's required or not. Uh, that... Um, uh, so 57% going to the UK indicated they were already vac fully vaccinated. 31% they intended to get inoculated as soon as they can, despite it not being uh, a prerequisite to start studies in the US. And that, that should be noted that the UK, UK universities are not mandating vaccinations uh, in large part like US institutions are. Uh, but uh, they are strongly recommending it and will allow students once they arrive to get their shots. So interesting to see where this goes, but for my money, if you're already in the pipeline for an internet, as an international student and are coming, planning to come this fall, the vaccine, you'll already know what the requirements are going to be related to the vaccine because you'll have heard that from your institution. And that may impact, certainly that could impact if your campus is going to be fully vaccinated, it needs, you need to be fully vaccinated before you can start in-person studies, then that's going to impact whether you can go to that school. So that's, that's not really confusion, that's just making, helping them make a decision. Uh, so the, there's a lot, still a lot of gray areas here, obviously, then for future students coming in after this fall, uh, there, there's going to be more, uh, more that will need to be communicated. But that's one of the things I think is most critical in, in, these, in these confusing times with the global pandemic is how effectively are you communicating these important public health issues to your incoming students. Uh, internationally especially. So that's um, that's some, always something I talk to with my university clients and uh, certainly I recommend that you always do a review and not just keep sending the same old messages because there's there's stuff that's changed and it will impact uh, how students are able to get to you, uh, if at all. So please do make sure that you're uh, regularly updating those comp flows. Now the final question today is how far will China's crackdown on the West go? Now this one is for those that are are new to um, the Roundup. Uh, this is one that China has uh, been on this kick for a number of years now with their Belt and Road initiatives, trying to spread, spread their soft power influence around the world through infrastructure projects, through scholarship programs to bring students into China. That's why they're now the third leading destination of, uh, inter for international students, not just the largest sender abroad, the, the third largest receiver of international students. 
but they have also been taking many steps. Uh, we've seen on, on various news articles, particularly as, as it impacts uh, uh, Hong Kong, uh, but also as it, uh, with national security laws in, in Hong Kong and in mainland China. Uh, that are impacting uh, in educational institutions there. But you're now seeing uh, the latest uh, rule or law passed uh, that is uh, really attempting to crack down on uh, the education sector in China, particularly those that are for profit. Uh, they're perhaps returning more to their communist roots in this respect. They uh, no longer will allow these uh, for-profit companies to be making as much money as they are, uh, and that are forcing some of them to become not profits, non-profits. And what that might look like is impacting what they do uh, and how they incorporate in social media platforms and IPOs, uh, large, uh, large reaching, far reaching implications of this policy. But what it does do is it's impacting uh, the tutoring industry uh, with millions of jobs and students affected. Uh, it's even impacting uh, something as, as benign as teaching English uh, by U.S.-based or non-China-based uh, citizens. Uh, that uh, my wife, for example, teaches uh, English uh, to, uh, to kids in China as young as four, as old as 14. Uh, but now, uh, because of this new law, there is, even at her level, she, she's just teaching them English because these families want their sons or daughters to hear uh, an, an, an authentic accent, an American accent or a British accent, whoever's teaching them to, to teach their sons and daughters English. But that's no longer going to be allowed by this new policy. In fact, uh, the, there'll be any parents who haven't already booked slots, uh, if they have already have a package, they can book the rest of their slots, but after that, they're done. Uh, no teacher who's based outside the United States that's not a Chinese citizen will be able to teach English to kids in China. Uh, that's that's a huge change, and it's uh, that's down at the lower end of the of the scale, but it has implications all the way through to uh, Gaokao preparation to those that are prepping for foreign language tests or foreign t uh, standardized tests. Uh, huge implications uh, for this, and. Really, the phrase that kind of should strike, should not be surprising perhaps, if you know anything about uh, President Xi Jinping and uh, the Chinese Communist Party, Party there, uh, his quote from this is that discourse and ideology need to be controlled by the central government. And the feeling is with this new law that they're going to take back that control. Uh, that uh, President Xi Jinping has been criticizing China's after-school tutoring sector for, for several years now, saying it violated the laws of education and imposed a heavy burden on families. Because no doubt there are, we, there's anyone who's worked with Chinese families knows that they, they put everything into the preparation of their sons and daughters for university study, uh, whether it's English, whether it's test prep, whether all of these other things uh, for their, for Gaokao, for other exams. And now that uh, the government is saying that, no, we're not gonna allow that. Our families are the most important resource but we want to control the dialogue here. Uh, and saying they shouldn't have to spend so much money on, on this industry. It's a $70 billion uh, US spending dollar uh, in industry in China. So more to come on that, I'm sure, in the weeks and months to come. But for now, that's all we have on the Midweek Roundup. Thank you to everyone who's visited 
our roundup over the last uh, three years. Uh, you've really made uh, these 150 episodes uh, be such a pleasure for me to deliver. And I appreciate all the feedback that you give me, particularly from my EdUSA friends uh, and those colleagues around the world that uh, make regular watching, listening, or uh, participation in the live chats uh, go so well. So thanks again for all your support. Look forward to chatting in the weeks to come. Cheers.